Well, good morning again. Um, we are obviously reading from Psalm 23 today. I'm going to read it one more time in, in another version. But before I do, I just want to say a few words about why we're doing Psalm 23. <clears throat> um, I got a communication card about a month ago. Somebody said, please, Pastor Matt, redo your very first sermon um, that you gave at River Street on Psalm 23. So that was seven years ago next Sunday. I came here. Uh, it was just Abby and I back then. And we came and did a candidating Sunday. And I chose to preach on Psalm 23. Uh, and so I hope whoever it is that asked for me to do this again is here. Because <laughs> it was anonymous. So I don't really know. Um Anyway, Psalm 23, uh, I listened to that sermon. I found the CD of, of that sermon and took it with me to California this week and listened to it on the way down. And Abby and I were listening to it together. The boys were asleep and uh, we got done and, and Abby looked at me and she's like, what did you think? And I was like, oh man, that was so bad. And she's like, what? <laughs> she's like, all I thought about was all the wonderful things that have happened in the last seven years and I kept thinking about, oh, you should have told this story here, and you should have not used the word um so many times, all that sort of stuff. So anyway, uh, there it is. Um, <clears throat> again, so I want to I want to go through this uh, passage today, and I'm not going to preach the exact same sermon I preached seven years ago because that just would not work with my soul and heart. Um, so there, there might be some different stories and, and such, but... The same gist of that sermon will, will be today, and, and it really revolves around the line, my cup overflows. And I'll keep that, that imagery and that, that line kind of in your heart and in your mind as we go through Psalm 23. So this is Psalm 23 from the NRSV. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. I'm going to take this passage in, uh, or this chapter, this psalm, and, and kind of split it up into three different groups. The, uh, the groups are somewhat arbitrary, although they, they do align with what the way that your Bible will break them up into stanzas. But there are different ways to look at this psalm. But these three, um, they, they all have uh, their own little message in them, their own little sense of what God is doing um, in particular, who God is. And the first one is the idea that it starts out with thinking about God as shepherd or as provider. That very first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need, is another way to translate that. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. This picture behind me 
is a picture of the Negev. Okay, the Negev desert makes up like a third of the nation of Israel. Basically, so David grew up in Bethlehem, and just a little way south of Bethlehem, just a few miles, it turns into Israel turns into a wasteland. Okay, called the Negev, and that is the wilderness. Uh, it is this uh, incredibly treacherous desert, and David probably, we know, spent at least a decent amount of his life in the Negev when he was running away from Saul. This was one of the places he would hide out during his lifetime. And so when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Does anybody see any green pastures in that picture? <laughs> How about still waters? Any still waters in that picture? There are, in fact, some green spots in the Negev. There are, in fact, some still waters in the Negev, although you have to be very careful about still waters. Uh, you have to know which still waters are stagnant and therefore are full of bacteria and stuff that's really bad for you and will kill you. The difference between that kind of still water and the peaceful water that still has a little bit of movement so that it kind of cleans itself out and you can drink it. So how do you do that, though? If you're in the Negev, how do you make sure that uh, you are finding what you need? Imagine that you're a sheep, a, sh a sheep. That just doesn't feel right. Imagine that you are a sheep <laughs> and you are in the Negev. <clears throat> First of all, your brain is not very big. <laughs> Second of all, what if you've never what if you're a sheep and you've never been in the Negev? How are you going to find still waters? How are you going to find green pastures? Not just that, but how are you just going to make your way through the Negev? You aren't, right? If you're a, if you're a sheep, none of you are, are, are sheep. You're all much smarter than sheep. I've, I've seen sheep. They're not very smart. Um, you're much smarter than that. But if you were a sheep, you're toast in the Negev, right? You're going to fall into a canyon. You're going to get eaten by wolves. I mean, you're going to have bad things happen to you if you're out there all by yourself. And so a sheep needs a shepherd. A sheep needs someone who knows the way. Sheep needs someone who can say, this is the direction of the green pastures and this is the direction of the still waters and maybe we have to go through these places that you might not understand maybe we have to ascend these treacherous heights and go down into deep dark valleys but if you will trust me i will lead you to water i will lead you to green grass because i know the way there's this park in uh, Indiana that I grew up running in. It's called Chain of Lake State Park. And it's this massive uh, park in the northeast corner of the state. And, and I have run every single inch of that park that has a trail on it, right? Every inch of it. And I have run it hundreds of times, okay? It's about 16 miles to do the whole thing. And I have run all 16 miles of those trails many, 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 many times so that when I go back, the chain of lakes. I and years after years in between running at this state park. If if I go back there, I will not get lost. I I, I won't. 
right? It is ingrained into my soul. I know that territory. Um, so that if you go to Chain of Lakes State Park with me, I'm going to get you from your car to wherever you want to go and back. No problem. If you want me to lead you through the Negev, <laughs> we're both in trouble. <laughs> um, anyway, the point being that you need somebody who knows the terrain. And what David is simply saying is that the kind of provision that God gives, the kind of shepherd that God is, is he's the kind who can find the green pastures. He's the kind who can find the still waters. Incidentally, if you are a sheep, uh, rushing water is actually really dangerous for you, right? Because uh, you are made out of wool. <laughs> and wool gets extraordinarily heavy when it gets wet, right? So rushing water, sheep, is very dangerous for sheep because they, they get wet and then they get swept upstream. Whereas in still water, if they get wet, they're not in nearly as much danger. Plus, they can be saved a lot easier and pulled out a lot easier in still water. So not only do you have to find water, if you're a shepherd, you have to find this still water. And David's whole point is, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever desert we're wandering through, the kind of shepherd that God is, is the kind that can lead us to where we need to go, can lead us to provision, can lead us to these bare essentials. And so we start out, David starts out with this idea of God as shepherd. God as the one who provides all of his needs. The next one, though, is probably the most famous part of this particular chapter. Even though I walk, yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. The sense of God's protection, which David certainly in his own life would have known very well. And so the good shepherd protects. I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. This is an actual dark valley in the Negev, um, incidentally. Again, a place that, that David and, and many other um, Jews would have found themselves at one time or another. I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. This protection is, uh, is funny. Funny is not the right word. This protection is not a surface-level protection. It's not, because if, if it was surface-level protection, then um, the shepherd would just not leave you, lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? You just, that's the valley of the shadow of death. Let's go this way. Right? Follow me this way, sheep. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. This protection is much deeper than that. This protection says, I will be at your side when we hit the dark valley. I will not prevent all dark valleys. Maybe some. I'm sure God does prevent some. Legend has it, though, that uh, Peter was crucified upside down and that John was boiled in oil and survived that experience. Um, I, for one, I think would have been like, you know what, maybe, maybe just let me go. <laughs> um, if they boiled me in oil and it didn't work, what are they going to do next? Um, anyway, 
the uh, John, and yeah, anyway, the disciples, tight-knit, intimate relationships with Christ and with God, and uh, they still walk through this dark shadow, this cavernous, treacherous, perilous path. They still go down it. Because the protection is not a protection from such things. The protection is his presence. The protection is he will be with us. So yes, he will provide all of our needs. Yes, he will protect us. But the dark valley comes. And when it comes, you will see that your shepherd is well prepared for it. He, in fact, has walked it before. He knows the way from that dark valley to the green pastures. Perhaps the green pastures are, um, perhaps the dark valley is a, a must to get to the pasture. Maybe it's not, though. <laughs> this good shepherd does indeed protect but it is deeper than that. It is deeper than maybe what we would want. Uh, the story that I, I told seven years ago was a story about living in Jamaica. and Because uh, we had lived in Jamaica that summer and we had worked in uh, the hills, the mountains of Jamaica. You think Jamaica is like a tiny island, but it's actually got like 6,000 feet mountains in the middle of it. And it's, it's a jungle. It's just... It's, jungled um, mountain range, really. And so Abby and I had spent the summer there, and uh, we had this horrible thing happen while we were there. We had this dark valley, this valley of the shadow of death. So I had, um, I was the keeper of the money every week, and I had 2,500 American dollars in my suitcase, okay? And um, I... <laughs> I kept it there because I was terrified of carrying it around with me in Jamaica because you ran into strangers all the time. And I had been threatened by different strangers. And I was like, I'm just going to lock this stuff up and come back and get it when I want it. And, uh, and tw incidentally, $2,500 in Jamaican cash is like 25000 Jamaican dollars. So it's this huge stack of money, right? Even in the biggest denominations, it's still this gigantic stack of money. So I just felt way too uncomfortable to like, have that on my person. So one day, though, I come home from uh, working. We, we dug toilets pretty much every, every week. We would dig these eight-foot, four-by-four-feet, eight-foot-deep um, toilets, and then we'd build the, the outhouse for, for folks. And uh, so I came home just like dog-tired from that, and I opened the door, and our stuff is all strewn about in our room, and the money is gone. <sighs> Whoops. That's bad enough, right? I mean, because I had to like call my bosses in America and be like, I just just lost $2,500. You're only paying me $700 to be here, but I lost, managed to lose $2,500. <clears throat> um, especially because they had told me not to keep my money in, in the room. But it's easier for the person not carrying it around to tell you that. So I, I, that was bad enough. But I call in my Jamaican friends to see the room, and they start to cast doubt 
on the on the idea of us being robbed. They start to to sort of point and insinuate that maybe I took the money. I was like, but wait, I was I was with everybody. I was I was gone. I, why would you? And why would I? Why would I take it? Like I gave up a perfectly good, well-paying job to be here in Jamaica. Why would I do that? But then what I didn't realize was that culturally, they just couldn't bring themselves to think someone in, in their small community had robbed the missionaries, right? Because their, their community really relied on the work that our, our group did, and, and they just couldn't bring themselves to believe that someone in their community would do that. And I didn't know that. I was not sensitive to that at all. I just realized that I suddenly was under investigation. And so they send a police officer one night, and he looks at it, and he's... I, I can't even talk to this guy. I don't, I don't understand. I still to this day have no idea like what happened. He was there for like an hour, and I swear we were talking about two different things. Right? I kept saying like, well, here was where the money is, and he was like over on the other side of the room looking through this window. I was like, no, there's a hole in the wall here where right by where the money is. And he kept looking at this window. I was like, no, come over here and look at this. I don't know. And he left, and I don't know, what, what was that? So then the pastor in the community comes to me and he says, he says, Matt, um, we're very concerned about this whole situation and, uh, and we want to get to the bottom of it. And so the, uh, we're calling in the, the mountain police are going to be here tomorrow to, to interview you and investigate. And I just want you to know that the mountain police are known for violence. Um, they, they are known for uh, corruption and they are known for um, raping women. Why are we calling them? <laughs> why, why is that the people that we're going to call to come and investigate? What do I know? I didn't have any choice. So the next day, I sent Abby and every everyone in our group, because there was this team there, I sent them all off to, uh, to work. And I stayed behind waiting for the infamous mountain police to show up. And I stayed all day, and I cried um, spiritual and real tears. And I kept asking God, why this dark valley? What did I do that was so wrong? I wanted to come down here and love these people. Why? Why me? Protect my wife. Don't let her come back before these folks are gone. I said, spent all day like this. It's torturous, torturous, deep, dark valley. But I did, in the midst of those prayers, sense the presence of God. I did sense that I had a shepherd who could relieve my fears. I did sense that things would be okay, even if they did show up, which they didn't, because there is no mountain police in Jamaica. It was a technique to sweat me out to see if I would confess. <clears throat> so that was a horrible day. <laughs> Leaves me this next, uh, the next thing though. The last bit is about this presence, this presence that is so steadfast and so great and so strong that it can relieve fear in the darkest of times. It says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. So the next week, um, a new mission team comes and shows up, and I'm still doing my job, and uh, everyone still thinks that I stole all the money, and, uh, and people are turning against me, and two things happened during that that were really important. One was Abby and I had only been married two years. One year, two, two years, right? Two years. And uh, so our marriage was young. And we had no idea what a marriage was before those moments. I'm telling you, those 10, 10 days from the time that uh, the money got stolen to the time that I kind of got exonerated. Um, I had no idea what it was, what it meant to have a wife. Because every day I would come home and I would just be on the edge of tears thinking, why? Like, I just don't understand. I, I gave up so much to be here. Why is everyone turned their back on me? And every day my wife would wrap her arms around me. And every day she would remind me that we were in it together. And every day she would remind me that it was okay. Every day she would be an extension of the presence of God to me. The second thing that happened that was really important was that uh, the next week, midway through the week, I uh, was gone and I was with the pastor of the town who was really the de facto leader. And, uh, and somebody else got robbed. <laughs> I've never been so excited that someone's been robbed in all my life. I felt very bad about it, but I was so, so thankful. And so, <laughs> and so suddenly, people didn't know what to do with that, though. They didn't know what to do with the idea that they had kind of treated me as this outcast thief for 10 days. And now clearly, like, because the, the other, the people who got robbed were in the, a room that was a mirror to the room that we had been robbed in, um, which had become the tool shed. It was, and, and it was done exactly the same way that I'd been saying that it was done with a stick of bamboo and through the, anyway. Um, and so this uh, sense of, like, well, I, I kept thinking, like, well, where's the, like, I'm sorry I got started getting mad at God, right? Because it's like clearly everybody kind of the pressure was gone and everybody realized that I hadn't done it. And they, they had to really come to grips with the fact that there was somebody in their community that was doing it. And I, I was like, well, where's my, where's my, we're sorry. Right? And it didn't come and it didn't come and it didn't come. And it didn't come. This was the last day. I remember. We remember one one week. We uh, on the weekend. Abby and I went down to the to the beach and we stayed stayed at the beach because I just needed I needed a break. And I remember writing this letter to to the people of Catadupa was the name of the town. Writing this letter to them and and just begging begging for some kind of moment. It was me begging them in my journal. I, I wasn't going to send the letter. It was just a letter that I was writing for my own purposes writing this letter and just begging God and them to acknowledge that I had not wronged them, right? So the last Sunday that we're there, the last Sunday that we're in Jamaica, um, we, we go to church and the pastor of the community was also the pastor in another village about, I think it was seven miles away, and he would walk from the church 
in Catadupa to the church in Cambridge, I think was the name of the other town. And he would walk this seven-mile trail. And so it would take a long time to walk. It's like, it takes a long time to walk seven miles, right? And so he, uh, he goes um, and does the other church first, but our church you know, starts and it's happening and it's, it's gung-ho and there's lots of songs and, and he keeps not showing up. And so there's song after song and the worship leader's just like, well, let's just sing another one. And there's song after song after song. And, uh, and then the youth leader gets up and he's like, well, I guess uh, Pastor Leroy's not going to show up today. So I'm going to go ahead and preach. And so he preaches. And then at the end of his sermon, Pastor Leroy walks in the door, right? And, uh, and he's got a sermon prepared. So he gets up and he preaches too. And so we're, we're at church for four hours, which is great and fine, except that it's so hot. And then in Jamaica, the mosquitoes come to church. They're all Christians. They all show up on time. They're the last ones to leave. Um, so... So I'm, I'm there, and we've been there a long time. I'm, I'm covered in mosquito bites, and I'm just like, man, the last thing in my consciousness is this line, my cup overflows, I'm anointed, and all that jazz. Whatever, God. Like, I am so tired. I just want to take a hot shower and go home and forget that this stuff ever happened. So at the end of the sermon, he's wrapping up. And I'm sitting there with this gloriously Christ-like attitude in the pew. And, uh, and he says, now, you all know that Matt and Abby have been serving among us this summer. And, uh, and you know that they've worked really hard. And you know that something has happened this summer that was not good. And, uh, and we want them to come up and we just want them to hear from all of us. So we, we stand up and we come up in front of the uh, in front of the church, and he lays his hands on us, and he tells the congregation to sing this song while he's going to pray. Okay, he's singing this song, <clears throat> and uh, the song is is beautiful. And I I um, I'm not going to try to sing it for you because then it won't be beautiful anymore. But it is it's this song of blessing, the song of God guide them, God please guide them, please take care of them. Please walk with them along this way. Right? Thank you for them. Okay, so there's this song going on. There's all these people, because everybody in that church was all the people we'd worked with, all the people that we'd had this shared experience with, all the people who had put that kind of pressure on me. And they're all singing this song, and I start to cry. And Pastor Leroy starts to pray, and in his prayer, all the, so all the people are singing at the same time, and he's praying for us, and he starts to pray this prayer. And in that prayer, he never says, I'm sorry. But he said everything but that in his prayer. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, these people are not my enemies. These people are not my enemies. Whatever it is that's got you beat, whatever it is that's tearing you down, Whatever your dark valley is right now, there may come a moment when the table is set and God brings some sense of vindication. God gives some sense of restoration. God sets a table at which you sit and others witness and God says, I love you. Through this whole journey, I'm still with you. 
Now, this idea of the cup overflowing um, is a really powerful one. And it's powerful because I didn't, I didn't, I don't deserve an overflowing cup. I didn't deserve that moment at that church. If I got what I deserved, I would have just been sent on my way. Because I I did not steal $2,500, but I did act like kind of a jerk. (laughs) I did have a bad attitude. I did want nothing more than like revenge a couple of times. And so that moment that I had was a moment of grace. And this cup overflowing is a moment of grace. You see, the world treats us typically like we deserve, um, or worse. I remember I, uh, I had this friend, um, or I thought he was my friend. His name was Joe. It was fourth grade. He was like one of the most popular kids in my class, and I invited We were on a baseball team together, and I invited him to come to my home and you know, like hang out and play video games and that sort of thing. And, uh, and the day that he was supposed to come, we were in uh, like choir or something horrible like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember me turning around. He was on the riser behind me. And I turned around and I said, you know, still coming over this afternoon, right? And he was sitting, standing next to this girl that I knew that he liked. And she looked at him like, you're going to his house? And he was like, no, what are you talking about, man? And, just, and then the choir teacher like fired things up. And so that was like over. And he didn't come to my house afterwards. Right? We might get labeled with a scarlet letter in our life for what we do. Who knows why I had the reputation of someone that you didn't want to go over to their house. But I probably did a thing or two in elementary school that uh, rubs people the wrong way. I'm not saying I deserve that. But maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've had these dark valleys and in the midst of the dark valley, you've done something to someone or some way and somehow... Those people are not going to set that table for you. Those people have no interest in having that moment of vindication for you. They just want to send you on your way. They want to part directions. This idea of the cup overflowing is that at that table, that table with all the enemies, with all the whatever represents that dark valley, whatever it is that's aching in your soul, all that stuff gathered around you. And at that table, imagine you've got your cup and it's starting to run dry. And the, it's late in the evening. And, and the host, you're not sure, does the host want me here? I really don't deserve this meal. I really don't deserve this moment of vindication. And your, your, your cup is going down and down and down and down. And you're thinking, does this host want me here? Maybe he's going to turn it. Maybe he's going to change his mind. Maybe, maybe he's started to rethink and started to remember all the reasons I don't deserve to be at this table. Maybe... He's remembering kind of my scarlet letter. Maybe he's ready for this evening to be done. And that host, while all that's going on in your mind, he takes this and he starts to pour you a drink and it starts. Don't worry, it's just water. I almost did it with grape juice. He gives you a cup like that. With a big laugh. It says, drink up. The night's young. <laughs> Water, of course. <laughs> the cup overflows is really simple. He's not ready for the dinner to be done. 
He wants you to stick around. He wants you there. This is not a smart shepherd with his dumb sheep where he's just trying to make make ends meet and get them to, to, um, um, to be fat enough for slaughter or get them to have great wool so that he can sell the wool. This is a shepherd who doesn't think his sheep is, are dumb. This is a shepherd who wants his sheep to dwell with him all their life, their whole life long. We often think about that being as he- uh, uh, an idea about heaven, right? And it's definitely, heaven I think is implied, but it's your whole life long. Not afterlife long, that's part of it, but your whole life long. Now, let's not let this table stop, God says. You have an empty cup, let me fill it again. Let me fill it again with my love. Let me fill it again with my adoration for you. Let me fill it again with my sacrificial love for who you are and who I'm making you into. There is no scarlet letter here. In the words of the psalmist, I have tossed your sins as far away as the east is from the west. I want you here. Yes, there will be dark valleys. Yes, there will be people who treat you like you shouldn't be treated. Yes, there will be enemies. Sometimes they will be human beings who are your enemies. Sometimes they will be voices inside your head and heart. Whatever it is, wherever you go, I will keep filling your cup up. I want to be at your side. You have no reason to fear because I am with you. This is the good shepherd. The shepherd who fills our cup to overflowing, who says, don't run off. Live in my house your whole life long. I want to finish with this sense, uh, the end. One of the translations says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. I think there's an implication of a choice being made there, right? And if, you, if he fills your cup to overflowing, some of us, if you're like me, I, I might still have anxiety about that. I might still have doubts. I might think maybe it was a mistake. Maybe the cup was for somebody else. Maybe I should go anyway. Don't do that. Don't let your doubts about your sins and your failures and your heartbreaks and your inadequacies, whatever they are, we all have a list. Don't let that undo the cup being filled to overflowing. God does indeed want you to say, yes, I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to keep sitting here. I'm going to keep following. I'm going to keep reaching out. Because the world is filled with reasons to disqualify ourselves. The world and our conscious, our, just our own minds, much less the world around us, just our own minds are big enough and strong enough to talk us out of it. Don't let that happen. The cup is indeed for you. So follow him. Let us dwell with him. Let us take his house with us our whole life long. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for um, the wonderful tables that we have shared together, God. Not tables of enemies, not tables of vindication, but tables of, of communion and of, of caring for one another and for listening to one another and, and for being an extension of, of your love and your presence to one another, God. Help us to keep doing that. Help us to keep being a church that, that acts like this, to, that acts in a way that we overflow the cup of those who, who doubt, those who, who feel like they are less than, those who feel like they've been marginalized and pushed aside and ignored. God, may they come here and sense a church that is committed to filling their cup all the way and saying, stick around. God, I pray for every doubt. I pray for every self-antagonizing voice. I pray for every heart that wishes to condemn us. I pray that all those reasons would be tossed aside, that you would wipe away all of that junk, all of that accusation within us, and you would remind us that nothing can undo what Christ has done for us. Nothing can undo your character. Nothing can undo your desire to be our shepherd, to be near us, to draw close to us, to walk with us through the darkest of valleys, God. Make that crystal clear in our hearts. And as we go, whether we walk out into green pastures or into dark valleys, or maybe even both at the same time. Help us look to our left and to our right and up and down and see that you are near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.